Thank you, Rosemary. Well, we'll be in Isaiah 56 today, if you want to turn there. And I think Chris's uh, introduction was really good, because I don't know that he intended to make an introduction, but it was a fitting one, because um, we're going to talk about prayer today, how God's house is a house of prayer, what that means for us. And I like that prayer, it's really appropriate for every occasion. It, uh, whether things are going poorly in our estimation or things are going well, there's always an appropriate time to pray, to thank Him, to seek grace and mercy and help of need. We can just converse with Him throughout the day that He's there for us. And there's no age restriction. There's no time limits. There's no booking that you have, that's required before you can enter into the throne room of grace. I mean, you try to make a, an appointment to see even your supervisor, and that could be difficult, or or a, a world leader, imagine, that you're going to try to get access to uh, the prime minister for, for 30 minutes uninterrupted time. Forget about it. It's not happening. But God, the creator of all things, we can come before him at any time, as much as we want, as often as we want, no matter what we've done. There's no cost except faith, willingness, and time. That's something prayer requires, is some time. And we can pray not only for ourselves, but we can impact the lives of other people, shift the direction of a nation, and and we can pray for people we've never even met. We don't even know their names, but we can intercede on their behalf because we have a mediator, Jesus, who knows them, who is able to, to not just sympathize with us, but actually do things about it. So many people like, oh, you know, I'd really like to help you, but it's out of my hands. Everything is in God's hands. Nothing is hard for him. And if we're on his side, he is on our side. And that is a lovely thing indeed, that we have not only a God with so much love and power, but if we're on his side, he's on ours. And he has our back and our front and our future and everything. It's ironic that praying to God should be our first impulse, but sometimes it's our last resort. We don't even think to pray. We think to do a lot of things before prayer. But it's good to be praying uh, at all times. That's God's will for us. So let's pray. Lord, thank you that we can come before you even now and to seek your face, believing that you hear us, knowing that you hear us because you've said so in your word that we have Jesus who lives to make intercession for us, that you see our hearts and you know our thoughts afar off, and you have plans for us you're able to accomplish. And we pray you would quicken us by your Spirit to hear your word today, to respond, that we would be people marked by prayer, intentionally done for your glory, and that your will would be fulfilled in our lives and in this world. And so it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I like that prayer isn't complex. You don't need to have words. You don't even need to say anything because God knows the heart. It's really as simple and fundamental as breathing, as thinking. If you ever visit Israel, which I highly recommend to everyone who follows Jesus Christ, in Jerusalem it's evident that there's a lot of traditions that have affected the Orthodox Jews and in the manner in which they pray. We read in the law that they were to bind the word upon their arm and upon their head. and You'll see them uh, laying down this tefillin, 
and they'll they'll wrap it. And while they, it's very expensive. It has to be kosher leather and written by a rabbi. And uh, it could be thousand or more dollars to buy these little boxes. And they'll put them on in a certain order, and you say certain things, and you read prayers. And Hebrews preferred. Uh, and there's there's so many steps. There's a time to pray. There's a place to pray. There's there's a lot of effort that goes into praying. There's there's a lot of preparation. You wear your shawl. And we don't have those kind of requirements placed upon us to pray. But let's be stirred to prayer by that example of these devout Jews that do go through great expense and great time to prepare themselves to come before the presence of God and say, you know, I should avail myself of such a God who is worthy of such sacrifice, time, and expense that you would move to the Holy Land so you could pray at the Western Wall, so you could be close to the place where Solomon said, Lord, look upon this place in here. So the question is, if such time, effort, and expense was required of you to pray, would you pray more or less than you do now? It's hard to say, isn't it? The truth is, if we love God, we will love to pray because it's God who puts in us a love of prayer because we love him. We want to be in contact with him. That's walking according to his will. And that's what we will discuss through this chapter. So Isaiah 56, verse 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. God told his people to live justly, to live righteously, not to be saved, but because his salvation was coming. His righteousness was to be revealed. So prepare, prepare for God to reveal his salvation, which he has done through Jesus Christ. Now, our present age, we don't really focus so much upon, like, when you make a decision, are you thinking often, what's a just or a righteous decision? We, we will take the bar very low and say fair or fun or, or something other than righteousness and justice. And this present age of grace that we live in, it's given rise to many uh, heresies. And a couple of them, these extremes, is legalism or antinomianism. Now, legalism, it puts on someone a burden of performance to find favor with God. That if you truly love God, you will go through all these efforts and putting your personal convictions upon someone else as a measure of righteousness. That you must do something to find favor with God. Now, antinomianism is the opposite. It, it, why be convicted of sin? Because God will forgive me. I can do whatever I want because no matter what I do, God will forgive me. And so there's no righteous living. There's no desire to walk justly or righteously. And so this also is a great error. Now, the Bible, it says it's good for us to have godly restraint in our lives. So it's nothing wrong with boundaries, right? There's nothing wrong. There, there is right and there is wrong. And we should choose to do what's right. But we don't find favor with God or God loves me more because I make this sacrifice. But in response to his love, which I already have laid hold of, I choose to make a sacrifice. That's good. We don't have to force those things on others. And on the other side, Paul says, not everything that's lawful or legal for me to do edifies me. 
There's a lot of things that are legal that I could do, but it will harden my heart, it'll corrupt my mind, it'll wound my soul, and it's almost a form of spiritual suicide if I choose to do those things, which many people do. So God will convict us and he'll say that this is not for you. So it's not for me to force others into that, to guilt them, but to say, I'm going to live righteously and justly. So God, he pronounces a blessing here upon those who choose righteousness and justice, keeping his commandments. For the Jews, it was the law of Moses. That's the law that was given to them, the covenant of law. But Jesus has come and he has given us a covenant of grace, a covenant in his blood, that when we repent and we turn from our sin and choose to follow God and do what is right, um, we're not saved by the works of righteousness that we do, but by faith in Christ. His blood washes us from all sin. You'll agree with Jesus that the law is good. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's righteousness. It says in Micah 6.8, He has shown you, O man, notice past tense, Micah, Old Testament. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. As parents, you have requirements of your children, and God has requirements of us. And it's not legalism to do what God requires of us. And these are good things, right? To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. And God help us, we can do that by his grace. So the Jews, they made the mistake of thinking that by doing the law, they could be righteous. But what they didn't understand is the law was merely a mirror that shows a man his wickedness. It's like when you look into a mirror and you see, oh, you know, there's something on my face. I need to wash my face. Or I'm looking pretty scruffy. I haven't shaved in three days. I better do that before I go into work this morning. Um, the mirror isn't able to fix your problem. right? Rubbing your face on the glass is not going to get rid of those whiskers or clean off uh, dinner from last night. I hope you guys don't have that problem. Uh, maybe, maybe you had a midnight snack and you just were a little sloppy with the cleanup. You know, ice cream, peanut butter, whatever it is for you. Vegemite, maybe. So the law, it couldn't ever clean you. It couldn't pardon you of your past. It couldn't fix the wrong things you've done. Jesus told Nicodemus that if you want to go to heaven, you must be born again. You have to be made new on the inside, and that only happens through faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit coming inside, regenerating you, making you alive again. And then you can follow him. So the criticism of Jesus was not that the law was bad or evil, but it was wicked to teach the traditions of men as the commands of God. That was the hypocrisy. That was the wickedness. The Sabbath was a prime example of this, the hypocrisy uh, in that culture when Jesus lived. God blessed the Sabbath. That, that word, it just means intermission which is interesting. So God, he worked for six days in making the earth. On the seventh day, he rested. It said he sanctified and hallowed that day. And we are to observe a day holy unto the Lord. Now, under the law, the law prohibited certain things from happening on the Sabbath, like kindling a fire, for instance. That was not to be done on the Sabbath day. People and animals were commanded to rest. Like, you don't work, don't make your ox work either. Your manservant, your maidservant, they're to observe a holy day unto me. It's a set-apart day, a special day. 
Now, over time, a day intended by God to be a blessing became a burden. People became a slave to the Sabbath day. There were so many rules and traditions that they were having to keep that it was so much work. They had to prepare for this day. They couldn't do normal things. And hypocrites, in Jesus' day, they used the Sabbath as an opportunity to find fault with others. So instead of being a day of worshiping God, they were looking at each other to see if everyone else was doing the right thing too. Like, I'm doing the right thing. Are you doing the right thing? And then they would accuse. So many of Jesus' miracles that caused waves were on the Sabbath day. And people used that to accuse Christ, to want to kill him because he wasn't keeping the law. Now, I believe that God's pattern of the Sabbath should be observed by all people. This was before the law. But it's going to look different for each person according to the leading of the Spirit. I know when I was working uh, in a trade, that was one thing that I did to honor God. I felt that I should not work for money on that day. And I turned down double time, and, and that got people's attention. I didn't do it to get people's attention, but they're like, why would you turn down double time? I'm like, well, it's something that I do to honor God. I choose to not work. I, I trust that God's going to provide for my needs. So that's one thing I don't do. And when I, when I went to a job interview, I said, I don't work Sundays. It's just I serve at a church, and it's important. It's really important to me. I'm not going to budge on that one. So they knew what they were getting. But you can also do things according to the leading of the Spirit. I don't judge you if you work on the, on the Sabbath, and we shouldn't be judging one another. We have freedom every day to work for God. And that's something that Jesus, uh, you know, as they were walking through the fields, they were taking some grain in their hands and rubbing it together and being criticized. Like, hey, why aren't your disciples doing, they're not obeying the Sabbath. And uh, he's saying, you know, there's six, there, there's six days in which, another time, there's six days that you should be healing people. Don't be healing or casting out demons on the Sabbath day. And Jesus is like, hey, there's, there's only so much day and night's coming when no one can work. While I'm here, I'm going to do the work of God. And that's the way that we can also approach life. Colossians 2, 16 and 17, it says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So that law, it was a shadow of what Christ is the substance. Jesus, we find our rest in him. It's not in just having a day off work. Our rest is in Jesus, and we have that rest all the time. Good things come from the Lord. So Isaiah 56, verse 3, Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. The law made provision for foreigners or Gentiles to worship God and even to live among God's people. And there's all sorts of really neat things in the law. Like if you're harvesting your field and you accidentally leave a sheaf out there, like a sheaf of wheat, and you're right in your barn, and you're like, good day's work, and you look back and there's a sheaf out there. It says you're not to go back and get it. 
leave it. It's for the stranger, the fatherless, or the widow. If you are, it's time to harvest, and you take a stick and you hit the olives, the ripe olives, you put a sheet or a blanket underneath and you catch all the olives. It says, do not go back over them, don't knock them all down, and don't go back a second time over them. You get one pass. Whatever stays up there, that's for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. So they'll have food too. You weren't to glean the corners of your field, or you weren't to even harvest the corners of the field. It was for the stranger. It was for someone that lived in Israel that didn't have land. They didn't have an inheritance, but God wanted to make sure they had food and provision. You can read some of that in Deuteronomy 24. Gentiles who lived among the Jews, they could even celebrate Passover if they were willing to meet the conditions of being circumcised. And so they could live among them. That's in Exodus 12.48. Despite God's acceptance of them, the Gentiles, that is, the foreigners, they were only allowed in the outer court of the temple or the tabernacle. There was an outer court. Then there was the court of women, where the women, Jewish women, could go. And then there was the, uh, the court where the Jewish men could go. And then inside that, it was only where the priests could go. And in the very middle of that, in the Holy of Holies, then the high priest one day on the Day of Atonement had to go. So depending on who you were or your status or your where you're from, you could only you were limited to a certain spot. And in the day of Jesus, Gentiles who went beyond the court of the Gentiles, that was the death penalty to go inside the court of the women. That was totally illegal. So they took it very seriously. Now, eunuchs, whether they had suffered an injury or had been castrated, they were forbidden access to the inner parts of the temple courts as well. They could only go into the outer areas. We read about this in Leviticus 21, 17 through 20, Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. So foreigners sometimes, let's say in the worship of God, for instance, they felt like outsiders. I mean, imagine if during a Sunday morning, it's like, well, if you are not have not been born in Australia, you can only be in that outer room. You can hear the message, but you can't come in here. You can pray out there all you want, but you can't come in here. Well, I'd have to be out there, right? It wouldn't be great. Like, you'd feel kind of left out. And so the eunuchs and the foreigners, they felt like we're not able to really fellowship with God's people. We're cut off. We're kind of alone. They're all in there worshiping God, and we're out here. So eunuchs, not able to have children of their own. They felt left out from worship, left out from fellowship. Now these restrictions that we read about, they fly in the face of modern culture, don't they? We have a culture that seeks down to break, it wants to break down all distinctions between people, between genders, that we would say everyone should have the same access, young or old, everyone's the same. Now God did not change his standards based upon society. Jews and Gentiles are different. Men and women are different. The, a priest and a Jewish man, they were different. The priest was sanctified. He had been called to a particular job. And so everyone had their place. We live in a world that says, you know, forget all that. Everyone should do everything. And I'm not saying that that's wrong per se, but God, he looked on these people and they had different roles, different functions, different places. And he speaks to the outsiders, 
he speaks to those who felt outcast. And he says, don't say that God has separated you from his people. Don't compare yourself to a dry tree, that you're isolated and alone. Never say that. Because God had a promise for them. He said, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house, in my house, and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Instead of lamenting what they did not have, Gentiles and eunuchs were told to rejoice in that they had God. Rejoice in who you have and the future that he has for you. If you feel like you're an outsider or an outcast, he says, if you do what pleases me, I'll give you a place in my house. A place there that won't be taken away from you. A place that's better than having sons or daughters. And the eunuchs were like, you know, they wanted children maybe. Now many people are blessed with children. They love to see a legacy continue with the family name being perpetuated. But more blessed still is the man who has God as a father. Children, they're a precious gift, but they are temporary. You know there's no moms or dads in heaven? Because we're all united as God's children. It's kind of hard to imagine, isn't it, that your parents and your grandparents and, and your children, the relationships are going to be changed, that we're all God's children. We're all part of his family. I really can't imagine how that would be. But it will be good, and it'll be, we'll all be, in that day, free from the distinctions that society may place on us today. God gives a name that will not be cut off. And we have, in the church today, under this new covenant, which is an agreement through the blood of Jesus, God has established the church where we're all different parts of the same body. We have different functions. We have different calls that are upon us. Now, would you believe that people feel sometimes like outcasts or outsiders at church? It's likely that you felt like that. Maybe there was access to a ministry or to a particular role or to a group of people that you felt you were being denied. You would really like to be on the inside. You know, I'd like to be on the inner circle or something, but it just wasn't happening. And so maybe you felt left out. Or perhaps there had been phone calls made and, and, and you weren't included and you just feel like, oh man, I'm really wanting to be part of this, but I don't feel like I'm on the inside. And let's take God's word to heart. Is God's acceptance and blessing for you enough for you to be content and joyful regardless of where you fit in or don't fit in? Is that, is that enough for you? And I'll be honest, for a lot of people, it's not enough. It takes time and maturity and maybe being on the outside and feeling on the outside before you realize, you know what? I've got to find my acceptance in God. I need to find my satisfaction in Him, not through recognition of others, because otherwise, how miserable in existence to try to fight for the recognition and acceptance of men when we have God's acceptance already. Now, I pray that this church, this body that God has established, everyone who comes to Calvary Chapel, Sydney, feels like you're a part of the body here, that you are viable and important and loved, each one, regardless of your gifts or talents. 
And you have them. God's given those to you. And I pray that this is a, a haven of God's grace and forgiveness and acceptance, where you feel accepted and you feel valued, whether you've been in a, a visitor or you've been here for years. I really like what Pastor David Guzik said in his commentary. He says, often when people feel like foreigners or outcasts, the feelings become a self-fulfilling prophecy. It is only refusing to embrace such feelings and choosing instead to trust in God's promise that such feelings can be broken. If God says you belong, then you belong. And I really like that. If God says you belong, you belong, whether you feel like it or not. The eunuch didn't have kids. There was no, like, they couldn't say, see, at least my kid loves me. Or at least, you know, I, I have some something that, because it was so important to have children in that culture and also for a lot of people today. Because God has filled us, we can rejoice. Because he has accepted us, we can, re- we, hey, I'm accepted. I don't have to fight for man's acceptance anymore because I've been accepted already. God has received me. I am valued by God. I've already been included. Let's value being included by God. Verse 6, also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be a house called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. God's made himself available to everyone from the beginning. Even Gentiles, they were permitted to join themselves to the Lord if they would love him and serve him. If a foreigner was willing to uh, be circumcised and keep the commands, they too could enter into God's covenant and receive all the blessings that God had reserved only for his people. The blessings that God promised could be theirs if they would meet his conditions. Now, Jesus has nailed the ordinances to the cross. It's like everything that accused us, everything that showed that we were unworthy, it's been nailed to the cross. We are unworthy, but we've been washed in the blood of Jesus. His blood cleanses us from all sin, and we are born again. We're made new, and we've been put into the body of Christ. Like Jesus is the head, we're part of the body, or living stones that make up this temple. So we have a place. God's put you there, in this church, in the church generally. And it says that those who loved and served God, he would make them joyful in the house of prayer a house God called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, this must have been very encouraging to the Jews because as they heard this, they knew that the temple was gone. The temple had been raised to the ground. The altar was destroyed. And so even in this, in this passage, there's this hope and promise that there's going to be another temple. The altar is going to be restored. Worship for God is going to continue. And so if you're in captivity and you hear this, that God's house is going to be there. It's not there, but it's going to be. What a hope that gives us too, that despite how we may feel at the, at the time, God's the one who's going to make you joyful. God said, I will make 
you joyful. You don't have to try to be joyful. We don't have to try to put on a smile and act like everything's fine. Know that God's the one who will make you joyful, and he will make you joyful in prayer because he loves you. And God promises here that he will uh, gather the outcasts, those who feel on the outside and those who are really on the outside. He is going to gather them together. And Jesus said in John 10, 16, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. So the outcasts of Israel, they will be gathered. And he says, there's others, these Gentiles, that are outside. I must gather them. So I'm happy to be such an outcast. Because if you've been an outcast and you've come to Christ, well, now you're on the inside. You have an eternal place where he says, in my walls, in my house forever, I am your legacy. I am your inheritance. You are accepted in me. Jews today, they do pray towards the temple, which once stood on the temple mount. And Jesus took, and we read of some of that prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8. I recommend you reading it for the sake of time. I I don't feel like I have time to read that. But basically, he says, wherever wherever people are and they pray towards the temple, God in heaven, hear their prayers. Respond powerfully to their requests. Hear in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Because he's like, how can a house that I build contain God? I can't. It's not meant to contain him. It can't hold him in. But Lord, when people pray, listen to them, hear them, and answer. In Jesus' day, that house that was intended to be a house of prayer, people were made merchandise of. There were animals that were being sold. There was uh, money changers in there. And Jesus, two times, he made a whip and he went in and he drove out the money changers. He overturned their tables and he got rid of all the animals. And this is what he said. He quoted this verse in Matthew 21, 13. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. I like how he says, my house. He says, this is my house. He's quoting from that. I like that. Now, the temple, it doesn't stand today. But because Jesus is our Savior, we lack nothing. We don't need a building made with hands. We don't have to orient ourselves, orientate ourselves to face Jerusalem. I would be a total failure at that, I'm sure. And Solomon was correct in saying, that the heavens can't contain God, how much, how much less could I contain God in a temple? Do you know that as a Christian, you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within you? So your temple, what should it be? A house of prayer. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. He can't be contained within you, but as a Christian, he has filled you. He's made you alive. He's the one who made you born again. And so even as Jesus went through the temple and he cleared out on multiple occasions, God is going to come through our hearts and our minds and he wants to clear things out. These old ways of thinking, these sinful uh, desires that we have and and we hold on to, that he wants to come through and he make, make it clean again. Not that we would make merchandise of anything. 
There were things that were hindering prayer that were in the temple that Jesus drove out. Not with anger. doesn't say he was angry. But he was very forceful in what he did. It was a very clear message. And may the Lord do the same for all of us. That we would see, Lord, I want you to clean house. I do want to be a house of prayer. Now, it may be a pretty lame comparison, but I think some Christians, prayer could be mm, compared to eating your vegetables. It's something we know that's good for us and healthy for us to do, but we're really don't keen. We're not so keen on them. Uh, that's why there's all these... There's probably a lot of people here who like salad, but with salad we like lots of dressings and you know some uh, vinegar and, and balsamic vinegar... Um, oil, you know, different different things to, to kind of add some flavor, right? Because they're vegetables, for crying out loud. We, we like to taste what we're eating. It's work to go to the shops, and, to, and it's expensive to buy fresh veg and produce that, that it's, it's not going to keep for that long anyway. So why put in the effort? Prayer can be more like a duty or a drudgery, like eat your vegetables. You know, the kids, they're not so keen on the vegetables. Well, eat them. Something you've got to do. It'll make you healthy. Oh, okay. And that's how we can be about prayer. It becomes more of a, a drudgery and something that we, we do occasionally, but there's not a whole lot of joy in it or love in it. It's something that we just do. Yet God promises that all those who love him and serve him he will make joyful in that house of prayer. Whatever house God has given you to live in, you can be joyful in that house because that's where he has chosen to take up his abode. That's why Mount Moriah is such a, a, a prominent and important place in Jewish culture. You can't just build the temple anywhere. You have to build it there because that's where Abraham offered Isaac, his son. And God said, oh, like, here's the ram. I know now that you believe me. That's the place where they built the temple. That's the place where the Holy of Holies is. You can't just build it anywhere. And so God has chosen to make you the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's chosen to take residence in you. And this isn't to make you feel like empowered in yourself, but to be humbled that the God of the universe would choose you and he would choose to dwell within you and that he wants to hear your voice and he says, come away, my love. Let's talk together. I'd love, to, I'd love to intercede on your behalf with the Father who loves you. Now, there's many reasons why we may not have much joy in prayer. It could be that we haven't received the Holy Spirit. We're really not born again. We're, we're, we're going through the motions in the flesh. It could be that uh, we're not abiding in Christ's love which is to be keeping his commandments. We're out of fellowship with him. And so prayer, it seems empty. It seems dry. We're going our own way. It could be that our prayers are very focused on self, on how um, God can do something to help us out. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying for yourself because which among us does not need prayer? We all need prayer. But if God's temple is intended to be a prayer a house of prayer for all nations. How about expanding your prayer life to include the world? To include other nations. If you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, 
we'll see what Paul exhorted Timothy to do. If God could use the the prayers of Elijah to keep the rain from falling, he can use you to make a godly impact on other people's lives, even nations. That's how powerful our God is. It's not how powerful your prayers are. This is how powerful God is. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There is great joy when we do this. When we seek the Lord, prayers, intercessions, we give thanks for all men. If we're going to withhold thanksgiving because of certain men, then we're not going to find the joy of the Lord there. Also, for kings and all who are in authority. When's the last time that you took some time to pray for people in authority? In our, in our country and across the world. And to the end that we would lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Like, is that something that I value? That we would live quietly and peaceably in godliness and reverence. Usually that doesn't even enter in. We can be praying about a lot of other things. And then that last bit, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And we just go, oh, that guy is so heathen. How could they come to Christ? Well, how powerful is Christ? How mighty is he? We know it's God's will that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Pray for those world leaders. You don't need to, they don't need to even be in your country. You see their name come across your feet. You pray for that person. You pray for people that you know cannot change and they are wicked. They are wicked through and through and they are murderers. But the Lord can save them. He can open their eyes even as he opened yours. This is his will, that we would be praying and giving thanks for everyone, even people that have hurt us, even people that make us feel like an outcast or an outsider. We can thank God for them because God wants to reveal himself to them. Pretty challenging, isn't it? Isaiah 56, verse 9. All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. So we've had chapter upon chapter of blessings and uh, speaking of the Messiah that God would send. Now the tone, there's a very abrupt shift, isn't there? It starts talking about these watchmen. And he invites the beasts of the field to come and judge them, to consume them. Those who refuse to love God, those who refuse to obey him or keep his covenant. And he says, hey, come get dinner, beasts of the field, because my watchmen, they're not doing their job. And he compares his watchmen, those that God tasked to oversee spiritual things like the priests and the Levites, those who were to oversee the spiritual health of his people, he compares them to dogs, dumb dogs. 
Now, dogs are employed for several reasons. People buy pets, you know, for companionship. Some people, like, I guess the old, you know, you can have it as a, a Doberman to protect your... Where are Dobermans usually? It's like Rottweiler Doberman. It's like a guard dog. Something that's going to protect your property. The dog that is going to bristle if anything comes close and be a bit violent towards them, right? But he says, my watchmen that I... They don't even bark. They're like dumb dogs. They just like to sleep. They're just sleeping through. Like they're supposed to be protecting the borders, but instead they're just drowsing away, sleeping. They're mute. Like, where are the teeth? Where is the barking? That's not happening. So they're not fulfilling their purpose, right? If you get a guard dog, you don't want it to be a lap dog. You want it to uh, actually be a bit menacing and to make people think, oh, this is really not an easy target. I'll go somewhere else. So, a guard dog that refuses to bark, that prefers sleep over anything, that defeats the purpose of having a guard dog. So you get that, right? There's a clear contrast between those who love, serve, and joyfully pray God and these blind, sleepy watchmen. God says he's going to accept the outcasts and the outsiders, those who keep his commands. But he pronounces judgment on his watchmen who prefer to sleep on the job. Those who love sleep over faithful obedience will be judged. Now, there's nothing wrong with a good night's sleep. I would say that many of us love a good night's sleep, right? Now, there's many reasons that we might rise early. We might leave the comforts of our bed because we have a big day planned. We're taking a, a long drive or, or going early to go fishing or we're going to work. I mean, it's not really that, that uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It doesn't matter. So you get up to go to work. Uh, you are going to go play a round of golf. There's reasons why we'll get out of bed to rise early. Now, when's the last time you got out of bed earlier than you had to for the express purpose of praying to God? That's why you got up. You got up because you were going to talk to God that day. Hmm. See, that's where it it starts to hit, where you think, hmm. And then on the other side, it's like, well, I've done that five times this week, and you feel pretty good. That's not the point. The point isn't that you've done it. The point is there's a lot of things we get excited about doing or because we have to. But how about getting up because you love Jesus, you love God, and you want to talk with him and He because you know he wants to talk to you. Because it's not just what you want to say to God. There's things he wants to say to you. He wants to communicate to you. He wants to, to give you guidance and wisdom. No, it's very hard for a dog to bark at intruders when it's sleeping. It's very hard for us to be watchful in prayer when we love sleep more than the prospect of getting up and talking to the Lord. Verse 11, yes, they are greedy dogs which never have enough, and they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain from his own territory. Come, one says, I will bring wine, and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. Greed was the sin that God dealt with, Jesus dealt with in the temple, and he calls us to examine our hearts for the same. 
You know, we can be greedy for sleep. We can be greedy for money. We're never really satisfied with what we have. And for the greedy, nothing is ever enough. The only satisfaction for a person poisoned with greed is that mirage called more. It's just something that you're pursuing and and chasing, but you never seem to, to have it. It's like slips through your fingers. So you have the outsiders and the outcasts who prayed and sought the Lord. They would have joy. They would be accepted. But those who looked to their own way for personal gain, they would be ruined. And so you have this really clear contrast here. Greed robs us of joy over what we have because of what we do not have. These people, they weren't content with a big party today. They're like, you know what? Tomorrow it's going to be even better. I'm bringing the wine. It's going to be awesome. You know, like things are just going to keep going as they are. Now, God has put desires within us. These are godly when aligned with his will and word. But greed, it cannot be anything but selfish and sinful. It's not for God. It's for me. And only God, through the blood of Jesus, can break that bond. Greed is that vice that grips every human heart. And it will not let go. It will just crush you bit by bit. But Jesus, he breaks that. If you could please turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. We'll finish with this passage. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, have I joined myself to the Lord to serve him or to love him? If our prayers are aimed at moving God to us, then we have the thing wrong. Prayer is necessary to align our hearts with what God is already doing, not to get him like moving to do what we want him to do. Do you believe that God is right now doing things for your good that you haven't even asked for? He is. He's doing things that haven't even entered into your mind. He's protected you in ways that you have no idea. He's watched over you. He's provided for you. And we could say, oh, haven't I done this because of my might? As Nebuchadnezzar is strutting around his palace, looking at what he made, looking at how hard he worked and what he accomplished. And he says, your own mouth has judged you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So God's will is not some ambiguous unknown, but here it is in black and white. Whether you feel like an outsider, whether you are an outcast, you can always pray. Pray without ceasing. You can always rejoice. And in everything give thanks. You can't do this. I can't do this, but with the Holy Spirit, he does it in our lives when we submit to him. When we say, you know what, God, I believe you, and I want to, I want to experience that joy. I want to experience your presence. God says that those who love him will keep his commandments. And Isaiah 56, 7, it's true for such a one. It says, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer 
for all nations. So take heart, fellow outsiders, fellow outcasts. God urges us to pray because he has accepted us. He has received us and we have an everlasting place with him in his house, in his rooms. We have a spot because he's given it to us. So let's pray. Let's fulfill our purpose as a house of prayer. You are a house of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for um, receiving us who are undeserving. We deserve to be outcasts, Lord. We deserve to be outsiders. But you have brought us near through the blood of Jesus. We were aliens and completely uh, apart from the promises and of the commonwealth. The, the goodness that you have for your people, that was not our, our lot. But you have brought us near through the blood of Jesus. And you have adopted us as children. You have accepted us. And you like us. You love us. And you have great plans for us. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, exhortation to pray for everyone. To give thanks in everything. To rejoice always. To understand what your will is for us. And by your grace to do this thing. Thank you, Lord, that it's you who works in us both to will and do of your good pleasure. And you will accomplish what we cannot. What we would have never thought that we could have fellowship with you wherever we are, at all times, without restrictions. Lord, help us to be those who love you and serve you, who keep your commandments. Thank you for uh, giving us this truth today, and may we walk in it. Lord, we desire that you would clean house, that you would go into our hearts and show us where there is greed, where there are things that are hindering our prayers, hindering us from receiving that joy of the Lord, and may we be strong in you. Uh, to walk in the way that fully pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen.